Hello and welcome back to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. I'm calling this the start of what is essentially season three of History and Film. And with me throughout most of this year is hopefully going to be Logan Denning, who will be recording from Afghanistan while he's a contractor overseas there. So without any further ado, let's get started. So, let's get into Battleship Potemkin, and I wanted oh, to man. start with just a little context before we get into the movie itself. So, in 1904-1905 was the Russo-Japanese War, and basically my understanding is that both of these countries were kind of getting in the imperial mindset, you know, kind of, you know, after I'm sure everybody's trying to take a piece of the pie of anything Britain hadn't taken yet. So both Russia and Japan at the same time were very interested in that, you know, Pacific Ocean kind of near the, basically near the water of both countries. So the so the east coast for Russia and then the sea and kind of to the west of Japan. And they both kind yeah. of wanted to start taking over areas like Manchuria and Korea and basically butted heads because of that. Right. Well, Russia was looking to expand its influence in Manchuria and Korea to try and get a uh, warm water port on their east coast. Oh, right. Because I guess the ones that they had were only accessible during the summer. And then Japan was basically trying to kind of start to impose itself as a major world power and wanted to bring Manchuria and Korea into its own sphere of influence. And so that's what kind of started the war, the Russo-Japanese yes. uh, so, so yeah. war. So, so they went to a head, and it sounds like Japan wasn't necessarily looking for a prolonged fight and was probably agreeable to compromise. And actually, I think they said they would concede yeah. Manchuria if Russia would give them Korea, and Russia was like, nah. Right, so basically, Japan started winning, like, almost right off the bat. Well, they... I think that they attacked Russia first, actually. There was even a sneak a sneak attack on a naval base, very reminiscent of Pearl Harbor, yeah. but before they had yeah, planes. <laughs> exactly. And then they were like, hey, you know, let's, you know, they, they wanted to engage in peace talks. But by this point, uh, Tsar Nicholas II, who was the Tsar of Russia at the time, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to win the war. So basically, Japan kind of started off beating them and then said, hey, maybe, you know, maybe let's not do this war. You know, let's have these peace talks. And Tsar Nicholas was just like, no, not interested. But it was Teddy Roosevelt, the uh, U.S. president at the time, started doing some kind of like, uh, you know, backdoor dealings with both of the countries and ended up getting them both to come to the peace talk table. And they signed the Treaty of Portsmouth and Teddy Roosevelt actually got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906 for it. Oh, dang. And yeah, so basically it sounds like uh, Nicholas was just that confident that even though they were not doing well early in the conflict, that they would still be able to come back and be victorious. And he was wrong. The Japanese just kind of kicked their butt. And so basically it was a huge, embar huge, huge embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the first time in the modern era anyway, that an Asian power defeated a European power. And this kind of um, is the beginning of the the modern Japanese empire that you that you know we'll we'll see in future episodes in the run up to like World War Two. No, it is it is fascinating that basically yeah it was kind of Japan was definitely the underdog and not taken seriously and basically a, as a result of this conflict became kind of overnight a major world player or at least someone to be reckoned with which they had not been seen to be at all before and 
then now this ties into just what we're going to get into with what's going on with Russia at the time. So we're going to get into the, they call it the Russian Re- Russian Revolution of 1905. And what I'm reading yes. here says there's kind of four things that maybe in and of themselves wouldn't have been enough to cause major problems. But all these things at once, the tensions were just so high that a lot of stuff started going down. So obviously there was, you know, dealing with uh, the war not going well. So a lot of ethnic minorities that weren't getting along with the government and the government was being very oppressive and trying to kind of be pure in a sense that might be foreshadowing of what, you know, the Germans end up doing. Um, you have the working class. Again, we know in Russia, that's going to be what ultimately comes to a head. The working class kind of resenting that the government isn't taking care of, care of them. Just then the radical ideas of just overhauling civilization. And of course, we can't forget that, you know, we talked about revolutions in our, I think, our recap episode that you had the American Revolution in 1776. You have the French Revolution in 1789. And yes, this is over 100 years later, but it's still kind of that same sentiment that the common people are just tired of these people at the top calling the shots. And see how this Russo-Japanese war, and then you're, so you're sending the, of course, it's always the poor people that get sent to die in the war, and the czar is just like, oh, yeah, we're just going to keep fighting even though we're we're losing. Right, and it was, in Russia, it's extra interesting because they uh, the first revolution actually failed. So the 1905 revolution Tsar Nicholas II managed to keep power, basically. Like, he was successful in kind of, you know, getting through it. But then in 1917, they basically just tried again. And uh, that time they were successful and they, you know, ended up executing the royal family. And the Bolsheviks established the Soviet Union at that point, which I don't I don't know if we're going to... Are we going to talk about that in a future episode? Uh, yes, because we'll be doing Dr. Shivago down the line. And so okay. that will definitely get into that. I was going to say, like, spoiler alert for the whole timeline of world history, Logan. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yes, and, and Lenin, after the fact, would even say that the 1905 revolution was kind of a prelude to the 1917 revolution, which, as you said, was the only right. successful one. And 1905 was more just, uh, I guess, maybe an earthquake, like uh, maybe a, a pre-shock or I don't I don't know enough about earthquakes anyway so and then the quote so yeah. getting to Battleship Potemkin a 1925 silent film by Sergei Eisenstein who we've actually seen before who in, in, he directed Alexander Nevsky and Ivan the Terrible although both those movies were actually after this one so this is 1925 uh, about a 1905 event aboard the Battleship Potemkin and again, so this is in this time of kind of high conflict and tension of just the different classes and different groups in Russia just not trusting each other, not getting along. So what we see in the movie now, and this movie's only like 70 minutes and really only has like a few scenes, and they're actually kind of really long, elaborate scenes, which you think for a silent movie would have maybe shorter scenes and shorter cuts, but really there's like, what, three scenes, and they're all just really long, and it just kind of takes its time. So the opening quote of the movie, and again, everything, all the quotes are in title cards, but it's a quote from Lenin that says, Revolution is war. Of all the wars known in history, it is the only lawful, rightful, just, and truly great war. In Russia, this war has been declared and begun. And supposedly Lenin actually said that in 1905, just 12 years before his uh, Bolshevik Revolution will take over the whole country. So what we see in the film here is just kind of the sailors are grumbling that they don't really care for the officers and they don't really like the officers. And they're also talking about how they commiserate with their workers in the factories back at home. Now, of course, since this movie was made in 1925, some of these kind of sentiments could be 
kind of hyped up maybe more than the, what the sailors would have actually been saying on the ship because, of course, this is ultimately Soviet propaganda. Right. That's interesting. So this movie was made in 1925, kind of on the heels of the 1917 revolution. Correct. You know, it's about the 1905 revolution. I just I thought that was kind of interesting. Yes. And actually, so the film was even made as part of like the 20th anniversary of the 1905 revolution so it was kind of they, yeah. they, it was even kind of like part of like hey let's kind of hype this up and they again because they did see it as kind of the prelude to their ultimate takeover in 1917 so anyway the main uh, plot is triggered here when the men are basically grumbling about the available food supply and that they're basically serving them rotting meat and they even have a doctor come out and he's expecting the the hanging meat carcass thing i don't know terms and he, he's, he, he says like oh well these aren't worms these are just maggots just wash them off and eat the darn thing yeah which is actually true well i don't know if the if the quote is true but like that was one of the main kind of drivers no the, the movie's accurate the, the movie the movie's actually accurate yes the movie is is almost like completely historically accurate like it's definitely a true story with, with possibly a shade of, with a shade of propaganda but yes the details are right. fairly accurate yes yeah so and the uh the rotten meat being an issue is in real life what actually kind of uh was the straw that broke the camel's back as far as the the sailors you know kind of try to take over the ship was concerned right there's one more big step in in between which is that so they t- turn the meat into like a soup or a stew or whatever and right. the men are still grumbling, but then, yes, kind of the breaking point in, ends up being the men just refuse to eat it, and then not only that, they don't mutiny over necessarily the food itself. It's when one of the officers right. threatens to kill them for not eating yes. the stew made from rotten meat, and they're like, yes. oh, hell no. <laughs> right. So going into this movie, I didn't really expect a uh, silent film from 1925 to be as tense as this movie was. Right. But yeah, that that scene where the captain calls everybody onto the deck and, you know, basically asks, he's like, if you enjoyed the soup, step forward. Right. And like pretty much all the officers step forward. And then he like rounds up the ones that didn't and puts a tarp over them and has like the ship's guards basically do a firing squad, uh, which is all true, which all actually happened. Right. The tarp was even true, and he put the tarp yeah. over them so they wouldn't get blood all over everything. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, like, I didn't expect that part to be true. And then, yeah, in the film, then basically part of the crew convinces, you know, the soldiers who were firing, like, who are you firing on? What are you doing? And, and right. I, I didn't see any numbers as far as how many were killed of the, of the crew. Did you see anything about that when the shooting began? Um, it might have been only the one, the Kulinchuk, was the only sailor killed. Or maybe he's just the only one mentioned here. Wait, but so I thought they actually killed people under the tarp because I saw them falling down. But it was kind of confused. Oh no, it's... I I thought they were falling down because they were like, you know, they they thought they were gonna die. I thought that was just them kind of like falling to their knees thing. Okay, no, and and, and I'm not certain, and that's a, that's the problem with the silent film. And I even wrote that in my notes is that you can't hear the gunshots because it's a silent film. So I'm like, wait, did they just get shot or are they just falling down? And what's going on? Okay, well, and that's that's the reason that I don't think that they got shot because I think in a silent film you would, you know, there would be some sort of sound cue, be it a drum or a cymbal or something, to indicate that a gun been fired okay i did think that was a little unclear and when we do get to this the village of odessa later we do see smoke from the guns so we know that there's there's firing there right yeah and even a little more blood yeah 
Yeah, it says uh, seven of the 18 officers uh, were killed, including the captain. Yes, so when the soldiers then basically revolt because they refuse to just sit there and take this anymore, where they're literally being threatened with death for not eating soup, which, again, would make more sense plot-wise, too, if they don't weren't actually killed and they're mutinying just because of the threat of it that yeah they basically revolt the firing squad basically is now on the cruise side and they go and arm themselves and the one guy who basically spoke up at first who yeah you just said his name i can't pronounce it right Volunichuk. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I don't i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right either but it looks like Vakulinchuk. yes so he and, and he is historic. He is the one who is credited with kind of sparking this mutiny on board the Potemkin. Right. So it's there's the two main guys in the in the true story, and I think they actually mention the other one by name in the movie, but they don't necessarily portray him as a leader in the mutiny later. But Vakulinchuk and Matashenko. And Vakulinchuk was killed in the initial mutiny, and then in real life, Matashenko uh, was kind of the leader of the sailors who then took over the battleship. Oh, okay, right, because v- v- Vakulinchuk was not around to lead after that because he was killed in the in the mutiny. Right. Matashenko is the one who Vakulinchuk is talking to at the very beginning of the movie. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay, kind of setting those two up. It is a little harder to follow. We just with the, I mean, the footage is frankly kind of hard to, hard to see. I think it's just not clear quality anymore, and that could just be, I don't know if that's degradation or just obviously the quality of the cameras at the time, but... A little hard to yeah. follow with as far as that goes. And I kind of I kind of struggled to kind of follow exactly, but basically, so after the crew takes over the ship, they end up near the the town of the coastal city of Odessa, and right. there's just kind of the, the basically the crowd is almost kind of like on the crew's side. And again, it's just kind of this the whole 1905 thing where there's just a lot of anti-establishment and pro the people sentiment. So when the town hears that, you know. The crew took over. They're all on the crew's side for the Potemkin. And, of course, then they also used the death of Vakulichuk or whatever to kind of help prop that up. So they actually, in the film, have his body kind of on display in the town with a sign that says, killed for a plate of soup. And and right. I think, and it did say online that it, in real life, yes, his funeral kind of became like this uh, rallying point for a lot of the unrest uh, in the town. Yeah. At the beginning of the movie, they, one of them says, uh, all of Russia has risen. So I think that's to indicate that the uh, 1905 revolution has basically started already. And then so I think that there's probably already a revolutionary sentiment in the town. And then the body of, of Vakulinchuk there with the, you know, killed for a plate of soup. And then the rumors that spread throughout the town of the sailors that have taken over the ship is was enough to kind of embolden the rest of the city to uh, kind of tip them into full-fledged revolution. Yes, and then we get to the episode on the staircase, which is amazing. And Oh, before we go to the staircase, something that we were talking about yesterday, after they bring the Kulinchuk's body to shore and the town starts to come out to see, you know, his body and uh, there start, there's like a huge crowd and there's this, you know, stir with people, you know, talking about revolutionizing. And then one guy in the crowd who's obviously pro Zarist trying to get the crowd's attention away from Zarism. And he just yells, kill the Jews. Right. Just out of nowhere. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. And then the crowd just kind of beats the shit out of him. Right. Right. <laughs> and that was uh, 
That was interesting, and I guess I didn't think about it being a distraction tactic. I thought he was more just like, yeah, and while we're at it, <laughs> and, and they were just kind of not having yeah. it. I didn't think about it being an intentional uh, distraction tactic by, by Azaris, which makes a lot more sense. So yeah, basically, so the crowd is kind of revolting, and then the army kind of moves in, and all while the, kind of the, the, the ship's just kind of hanging out on shore, I guess. Oh, and the people, actually, that was kind of a neat scene. So obviously, there's nothing for food on the Potemkin, and the people getting like all their little fishing boats and everything, and start taking food and supplies and everything out to the Potemkin, so they have stuff. And then the army arrives to kind of quell the town. And so you get this famous scene, and even if you've never seen Battleship Potemkin, you've seen homages to this staircase scene and i was almost kind of laughing at first as far as how long are these freaking stairs because like it had it showed these people running down the stairs for like yeah. minutes and minutes and minutes i was like okay how long are these stairs oh and then you look up the picture oh no these stairs it was like 143 meters of stairs in this town of odessa it looks like i want to go to this place it looks amazing and i kind of read that basically it was just the way they figured out to get to the docks otherwise it was just kind of like winding sidewalks and there there was no good way to get from the town to the shore until they put in this giant staircase that's just gorgeous and it's just cool too to see and it was there i mean it would have been there in the in 1905 when this happened so just kind of a crazy scene and the the, the army just opens fire and it's just killing civilians and you get then the very iconic scene of a baby carriage slowly going down the steps after basically the, the mom gets killed. And then and as she's like dying, she like knocks her own kid's carriage and it just starts slowly going down the stairs. Now, if that sounds familiar, you may have seen the scene in The Untouchables, which has a very different ending, however, to the baby going down the carriage. In, in The Untouchables, Andy Garcia slides in and like as he's got like his guns drawn, does like the cool guy move and puts his foot up to save the carriage while he's still covering his buddy with the guns. Just one of the coolest scenes in, in cinema history. In Eisenstein's version, however, the baby dies. Yes. So this this sequence, the, uh, the Odessa Steps scene, is actually pretty widely parodied. That lady, there's a there's a shot of this famous shot from Battleship Potemkin where the lady, you know, it cuts to her, cuts back to, I think, somebody shooting and then cuts back to her. And she has one lens of her glasses shattered with like blood coming out of her eye, which was parodied in The Godfather in the death of Mo Green. You know, when they're going around uh, when basically there's the the cleansing um, of all the other uh, mob guys. And when they kill Mo Green, he's in the massage parlor and they shoot him right in the glasses um, and then also uh, in Naked Gun, 33 and a third, they have their own kind of Odessa step sequence with uh, O.J. Simpson and uh, the Pope. So, <laughs> and, and, and I remember that being, and everything I remember when I when I saw that, I like I just assumed it was a reference to the Untouchables, which it could be as well. A lot of times in references, right. you get kind of tiers of reference, and you're referring to something that's referring. I've I've had uh, athletes will quote a movie, and I'll be like, "Oh, that's from Casablanca," and they'll be like, "No, it's not. It's from Step Brothers." I was like, "Okay, fine. Well, Step Brothers was <laughs> quoting Casablanca." <laughs> <laughs> so then, basically, and I get I kind of get a little confused on just who's on whose side and everything here. But basically, the next phase again, there's not a lot of scenes in the movie. You have we don't want to eat this food. We don't want you to kill us. The city's coming to help us. And then the final scene, like we're, we're basically done with the movie. A bunch of ships come to basically confront the Potemkin. And it's this big standoff, basically one ship versus, I couldn't tell how many 
other ships are coming to get them. But, you know, a handful of ships versus the one ship with yeah, the rebels just, in charge. They just said a, a, a squadron. So I don't know how many ships are in a squadron, but right. it's more than just one. Right. And again, all this still basically in the movie is darn near exactly how it went down. So they even show like the ship kind of trains its guns on them. And the Potemkin is basically saying, hey, brothers, join us, join us. Like, we're not going to we're not going to shoot you, even though you have your guns pointed at us. We're just we're just like we're your friends. We're your friends, and they got the guns drawn. And again, it's intense. Like you don't know again because they don't know the Russian history. I guess you don't know what's going to happen. And it's you know the, the the commanders are giving the orders, and then couldn't believe I almost teared up when they basically put the sh- uh, guns on the ship. They just kind of pull them back up and let the Potemkin just kind of pass right between them, and everyone's just yelling, "Brothers, brothers, unite!" and and uh, yeah, I darn near teared up. It was it was kind of amazing, and that's the end of the movie. It's just kind of the successful uprising on the Potemkin and its role in the nineteen oh five revolution, and again as kind of the lighting the match for the nineteen seventeen revolution. With of course then the corollary that this is all Soviet propaganda, but it's not like they changed the facts for, uh, fundamentally anyway. Right. But this is actually a, a good example of uh, you know stuff that they slip in for propaganda. It's completely true that this happened, but when they're you know going full steam ahead at the the Russian squadron that shows up to basically sink them, um, the whole time they're just they're just signaling join us, right? They're not they're not shooting at them. And then after they get through the ships, let them through their little uh, blockade. It says that they were flying the flag of freedom over the Potemkin. And it's hard to tell in the movie, obviously, because it's black and white. But the Potemkin at that time was now sailing under a red flag. And that's their flag of freedom. The red flag of communism, basically. And I, and I read, too, so obviously black and white silent film. But I read for, like, one, one of the exhibitions or one of the times they showed it, Eisenstein himself went through and colored the flag actually red for, like, 108 frames. So for a few seconds... When you're watching it in black and white in the 20s, you would have seen a red flag on the screen and the crowd went wild. Oh, man. Okay, so I've seen, yeah, I've seen like screenshots of the red flag over the Potemkin, but I thought that was probably, I thought that was just done like in Photoshop. But that's crazy to think that Eisenstein just went through and just colored it by hand. Yeah, and, and he did, and he did a similar thing in Ivan the Terrible, where there's kind of this uh, base of the scene where they're kind of getting like drunk or stoned or whatever, and this black and white movie suddenly has this whole red hue for about five minutes during this party scene. So definitely something. Again, Eisenstein was Eisenstein was kind of this this uh, film film innovator. Oh man! So speaking of uh, film innovation from Eisenstein, and another thing I didn't expect from a 1925 movie. When the captain, going back to the beginning of the movie, when the captain first calls all hands on deck and he's he's basically yelling at all the sailors for not eating the soup. And he says, uh, oh, he calls forward. He says, you know, everyone who enjoyed the soups come forward. And then to the ones who stayed back, he said, I'll string you up from the yard and points at it. And it cuts to the cuts to the faces of the sailors turning to look at the yard. Then it cuts to the yard, which is the mast of the ship, basically where they hang all the uh, the flags from. Oh yes. And for a split second, two faint silhouettes of hanging bodies appear yes. under the yard. And then it cuts back to the sailors and back to the yard, and they're gone. Right. Which I think probably had to blow people's minds in 1925. Like, did I really just see that? 
Yeah, of course. You also think though too, like some of the first first films, even from ten, fifteen years before this, had had major special effects. Like the was that the Moliere movie, you know, the trip to the moon and stuff. So yeah, I, I don't disagree. But I'm also saying that was initially unprecedented. But if if you're getting Eisenstein, I think you you brought up the other day too that uh, he basically invented the montage and is given like, yes. tons of credit for like just you know we see montages still today it's almost kind of like a trope like oh yeah montage time and we enjoy them most of the time they're an important part of storytelling they basically started with sergey eisenstein and his russian movies right and specifically things like what's called metric montage which is where you have the cuts happen every certain amount of time or every you know every x number of frames you cut regardless of whatever's going on in action like it's not motivated by uh, an action on screen or a sound or anything. Oh, it's, um, it's a rhythm which thing, you, yeah. Yeah, which you see a lot like in movies where people will, you know, like shoot up drugs or something, and you have all those quick cuts, like just a couple frames of, you know, a whole bunch of just like seemingly random clips right. kind of cut re- together real fast. That's a metric montage, and that was invented by Eisenstein. Yeah, pretty cool. And, and before we follow up a little bit more on him, I wanted to follow up on the Potemkin itself, which basically, despite the kind of glorifying of it in the movie, based on what I was reading, the ship kind of had a uh, anticlimactic end. So yeah, the, basically, it sounds like the men, the, the crew just kind of escaped to Romania and then the ship ended up getting captured and the men just kind of disappeared in Romania and the ship ended up back with the Russians. And basically it was ultimately all for naught. It just kind of became the symbol, but really didn't accomplish anything. Right. Yeah. So going back to the very beginning where we we're talking about the Russo-Japanese War. So in 1905, uh, you have this ongoing, very naval heavy conflict going on on the east coast of Russia. So the Russian Navy sent a lot of its more seasoned senior sailors and officers to the East Coast to help, you know, with the war effort. So at the time, and this is, you know, kind of like a good example of, you know, little things that have this kind of domino effect that lead to a lot bigger things. So because you have the Russo-Japanese war going on, you have the Russian Navy sending all of its senior guys to the East Coast of Russia, which leaves the Black Sea fleets to be manned primarily by new recruits, you know, fresh guys, which means they're a lot more susceptible to like dissension in the ranks for things like rotting meat, which is one thing I guess that they credit the mutiny or credit for the cause of the mutiny is that a lot of these guys were relatively fresh new sailors. But anyway, in the uh the the true story, they take over the ship and it happens almost exactly like it does in the movie. They do run uh, a blockade or they did run a blockade uh, of Russian ships in real life. It wasn't quite as peaceful as it shows in the movie where they're you know brothers brothers they didn't get fired upon a couple ships did try to ram them though but unsuccessfully and then they basically just kind of sailed to romania under their red flag and they asked the romanians for help and the romanians said well if you give us the battleship and let us fly a romanian flag over it we'll let you safely into the port so they hoist the romanian flag but kind of in a last you know little revolutionary action Right before they give the ship to the Romanians, uh, they scuttle it, so it sank. But they got oh, rescued. Right, anyway. right, and then and the ship was salvaged, and it was kind of it was even used in World War One, and the ship kind of has another history. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was it was interesting, and just a just quick geography because it's not necessarily intuitive. So kind of as as you were saying, so this all did happen on the Black Sea, so basically straight south of Ukraine. 
or modern Ukraine. It would have been part of Russia even in 1905, I believe, and and even before the Soviet Union here. And then and then Romania is basically on the west side of the Black Sea with Bulgaria just south of that. So it it wasn't too far. And then Odessa. I mean, I don't see the scale here, but Odessa is probably just 100, 150 miles from the Romanian border, if you were going to draw a line there. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, too, to look at what Russia was at the time. So we always think of, it's not like the geography of the former Soviet Union countries now is what it was before the Soviet Union. So the Russian Empire was, actually, was the Russian Empire maybe even bigger than the Soviet Union itself, if I remember correctly? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly I, what would have split off. But I don't know. The Russian Empire was big. So all the, all the countries that split away after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were part of Russia. So like Eisenstein, for example, was born in Lat- what is now Latvia, but it wasn't Latvia then. It was just part of the Russian Empire. So yeah, he kind of studied, ar- uh, it looks like he studied architecture and engineering uh you know moved to moscow and just kind of not even sure exactly how he got into filmmaking but he was just just a, just a kind of a crazy talent for it to the point that with the success of battleship potemkin worldwide he was kind of invited to come out to hollywood to try to do movies out there but the problem was you're in the late 20s and early 30s and there's just this anti-communist sentiment that basically even though he was kind of non, I don't think Eisenstein really cared about any of it. I don't think he was anti the Soviets or pro the Soviets. He was just a guy from there and was not super concerned with it. But it just kind of basically prevented him from actually being able to make any headway in Hollywood. So he'd get some projects like basically greenlit, and then someone else would come in and be like, like now nah, we're not letting the Russian do that. And so that would fall through. He ended up in Mexico trying to make a movie and basically gets fired from that and kicked out of town before he can finish that and so he ended up kind of dealing with a lot of depression and everything because he basically was this great artist who just wasn't able to do his work ends up back in russia doing more propaganda films for them and mostly just kind of towing the line i also read too he actually so he became friends with like charlie chaplin and upton sinclair and just seems like a guy who had an interesting interesting life Yeah, and this is actually supposedly uh battleship potemkin was the favorite movie of both Charlie Chaplin and Billy Wilder. Right, Apparently They right. both said that, that it was their favorite movie of all time. So, I mean, this guy has friends in high places as far as Hollywood is concerned, but like you said, unfortunately, because of the stigma attached to him being Russian, he just wasn't, wasn't able to be very successful there, which is kind of a shame. Right, so he's basically stuck making rock, Russian propaganda films. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the guy was a genius. Like, he, you know invented methods of filmmaking that are still used today right and then and then dies of a heart attack when he's 50 so he just kind of didn't even get a he didn't get really fully realize his career while he was alive and then his what and then that career still gets cut short so yeah just just kind of a darn shame that we didn't get more movies uh from this guy and for uh for those still a little hesitant about you know the idea of watching a you know, a Russian silent movie from the 20s. I would say this is kind of the ultimate example of what I always talk about of a movie vegetable. I don't disagree that it's kind of maybe uh, hard or boring to sit through 70 minutes of this. I was even kind of like almost nodding off about 20 minutes in, but then it is so compelling. I just kind of find myself back in, but it's a really good movie. You need to watch it. It goes by pretty quick. And yeah, I get that maybe it's hard to watch with our modern impatience, but Again, movie vegetable. Watch Watch Battleship Potemkin. It's good for you. <laughs> and I think people, I think people would be surprised how much they enjoy it if they did just sit down and watch it. And I think one of the things that it has going for it now in 2019 is the fact that it's only 
an hour long. So it's not like other movies that we might talk about today where uh, <laughs> <laughs> where you have to devote, you know, three hours to be able to finish it. Like, you you know, you can find it on on YouTube. It's just it's just an hour long. Yes. Yeah. And because it's so old, I think you can kind of watch it guilt free and uh, free free <laughs> on, on YouTube. Right. I mean, I guess it's probably in the public domain at this point. I don't know the exact laws, but yeah, it's a Russian movie from 95 years ago. Go ahead and watch it guilt free on right. YouTube. Yeah. So that's all I have for this week on Bachelor of Temkin. Next week, we will get into Embrace of the Serpent in Colombia. So we'll be back in that part of the world and we will see you then. <laughs> <laughs>